This is In Conversation from Apple News Today. I'm Shamita Basu. Every weekend, we're taking you deeper into the best journalism on Apple News. In 2016, a video popped up on YouTube. It showed two little kids, boys five and six years old, throwing their tiny fists at a bigger kid as he walks away. Other children are gathered around watching. Some are yelling. The video has a heavy filter on it, so it's hard to make out faces, but you can see that no one seems to get hurt. It's a pretty unremarkable scene, probably familiar to any parent of young kids. As a result of that video, 11 children in Rutherford County, Tennessee, were arrested. Not suspended from school or put in timeout. Arrested by the police. The reason police gave for these arrests? They said that children who were bystanders, who ranged in age from 8 to 14 years old, were criminally responsible for not stepping in and stopping the fight. Now, if that sounds like something you shouldn't be arrested for, especially if you're a child, you're right. That crime does not exist. What that episode revealed was this really ugly and unsettling culture in this county of mass detention over years and arresting of children who didn't need to be arrested. That's Mariba Knight. She's a journalist for Nashville Public Radio, and she reported this story with ProPublica's Ken Armstrong. At the time, in 2016, lots of media outlets picked up the story. But she and Armstrong saw it as an opportunity to ask not only why did this happen, but also is this happening more often than we realize? And what they found was a disturbing pattern in Rutherford County's juvenile justice system. Hundreds of kids, some as young as seven years old, were locked up every year. Black kids were far more likely to be detained. And what ProPublica found was, in many of these cases, the adults responsible acted illegally. We should note that the county has denied any wrongdoing. In my conversation with Knight, we talked about how the juvenile justice system in America is like a black box how it shields the bad behavior of the adults in charge. But first, I asked her to describe what happened on the day several of those children were arrested at Hobgood Elementary School. And so it all culminates on this Friday afternoon when these officers come to this school in search of these children. Only four of them are at school that day. Some of them go to other schools, but the vast majority go to this one school. And so there's these four black girls that are at school that day, and they come for them. While being arrested, one girl falls to her knees, another threw up. Police handcuffed the youngest girl, an eight-year-old with pigtails. They were shocked. They didn't know what was happening. One girl was on her bus and was literally taken off of her bus and brought to the assistant principal's office and told she was being arrested. She had no idea what was going on. And yes, they were being arrested for watching this playground scuffle and not stepping in to stop it. And in the days that followed, ultimately, 11 kids were picked up for witnessing this fight. And it really broke open this system because what happened was the lawsuits just 
came in. They cascaded in on this mass arrest, and they began to pick apart what was happening in this county, and it revealed so much. Wow. Wow. I want to stay for a moment just with the experience for these children. I mean— Tell me what happens to these children when when they're brought into the detention center. What are their rights as a kid? I mean, does someone read them their Miranda rights? What happens to a child? What happens to an eight-year-old when they're taken into a detention center in Tennessee, in this county? It's it's a really scary and traumatic thing. And it kind of progresses as you stay longer because, you know, the booking process accelerates if they decide to keep you overnight. But essentially, for example, the girl who threw up on the floor, EJ, she was 10 years old. So she's brought in. She is screened. All of her jewelry is taken off. All of her small rings are taken off of her fingers. She is searched, given a 16-point search, and she is put in a holding cell where she waits. For other children that kept going. JB, the sister, was taken in, 16-point search, jewelry taken, all of her braids were taken out. That's part of the policy. Mm. Her brother, who was kept overnight, it accelerated. So he is taken in, given a 16-point search, put in a holding cell, then forced to shower naked in front of a guard who is of the same gender. He is given facility-issued clothing, and he is shackled his hands, and his legs, and he is taken to a cell. Do the children understand what's happening as they're going through this process? I mean, I'm also curious, like, when do their parents get called? Yeah. That was something we outlined in the story where the police specifically told the principal, do not call the parents, do not call the parents. Their parents will be called once they get to the detention facility. And at a certain point, the principal just says, screw it. I'm not following this. I'm calling the parents. So she starts to call the parents and they start to arrive. Some come to the school and they are outraged, as you can imagine. And they don't understand what's happening. They're like, what did my kid do? But they are told there is a petition for your child. And in that county, petitions were treated like warrants for arrest. And so what power did they have? I mean, that was one of the striking things about this. We we kind of outline in the story how two of the three police officers there that day do not want this to happen. They are utterly you know, kind of devastated by this. One officer keeps trying to call up his chain of command to try to get somebody to call this off. Those two officers are Black, and they wonder, would this be happening at a school with mostly white students? Hmm. The principal, she doesn't want this to happen. She's, like, crying, trying to, you know, advocate for her kids. Nobody is listening, so she's scared she's going to get arrested. Hmm. So... Not all the adults in this situation were doing the wrong thing, but nobody was listening to them Hmm. when they were trying to say, wait, hold on, let's just pause. What are we doing here? You know, you were starting to talk about how JB got pulled deeper into the process. He was booked. He was kept. What did his experience end up looking like? I mean, he had the full gamut. So he was arrested at his home in front of his family, in front of his small relatives, 
Um, and he's 12 years old. Again. 12 years old. Yeah, his mom said that her three nieces were there, very little, and they had bad dreams afterwards. They were scared they were going to get arrested. This was a story I heard from all the kids. Like, it was so random. It was so absurd that then they thought, what's going to happen if I go to school? Will I get arrested? Well, so, but back to JB. So he's, he's arrested. He's handcuffed. He's put in the car. He's driven to the detention facility. He's booked. He has to shower. He has to go in a cell. Recently, Knight spoke with JB, years after this incident took place. JB's full name is Jacorius Brinkley. He's 18 years old now. Here's what he remembers about being detained. I just stand by the door and watch, try to watch TV. Like a guard just keep on walking past and stuff, saying, like, you can't, you can't be by the door. You got to sit down. I can't even see the TV. That's what I'm telling him. He's talking about, man, you finna get put on lockdown. Brinkley was eventually put on lockdown, which is another way of saying solitary confinement. Like they take everything, like your sheets, your cup, you can't even drink water. Like your cup, your toothbrush, everything. They take everything from you. They take everything. If you're wondering how common this experience was, Knight spoke with another person, Quintarius Frazier, who was at the same facility at around the same time as Brinkley. Frazier has developmental disabilities. He was 15 years old when facility staff put him in solitary, confining him to a cell for 23 hours a day. I just got used, I got trained to it like an animal. I got trained to them doing me like that. I feel like an animal. I feel like a dog. Uh, that's how exactly how I felt. Like, it ain't nothing I can do right now. I can't read my own type of book. I can't come out myself. I just feel like a dog. They feed me every day. They feed me when they want to. They open the flap, feed me, and close it. You know? So I really felt like an animal. So how was this allowed to happen? Who were the people running this system and making decisions that were putting very young children behind bars? Knight found that there were many adults involved, but one person bears a huge amount of responsibility, and her name is Judge Donna Scott Davenport. She has a very outsized role in this county. This county started juvenile court in 2000. She was elected in 2000. So... She is the first and only juvenile court judge that this county has ever had. Since they created this court, she has been there. She's in her third term. She's an elected judge. And under her is the jail. So she is kind of at the top of the org chart. And underneath her, she appoints the jailer. And the jailer has control over the jail. So ultimately, she controls the court system. And she controls the juvenile detention facility, which is a really pretty astounding consolidation of power. I understand that you went back and you listened to dozens of hours of radio appearances by this judge. What did you learn about her through listening to that? We asked the judge for multiple requests to speak with us, and she declined. Uh, But you get a window into how she operates because she's had this radio show for the past 10 years, a monthly radio show where she goes and talks about the work that she does. It's pretty special that a judge would have a radio show. And it's all the more remarkable because juvenile court is 
very much a private place, right? The records are sealed. Many of the hearings are not open to the public. So you really don't know much of what happens in there. But when she talks on the radio, she kind of cracks the door open into what's happening. Mm. And what we learned from listening to about 70 hours of her radio show is that she really wants to help children. She believes she's helping children, but she has a very, very kind of scared straight mentality. Kids need consequences. They need structure. Children are um, really out of control. I've locked up one seven-year-old in 13 years, and that was a heartbreak. But eight and nine-year-olds and older are very common now. She has this kind of mentality that we've seen back in the early 90s, you know, with this idea of children have run amok, they've gone wayward, they're super predators. She came on the bench as that was really waning. And we were realizing as a country that we can't treat children like that, that that wasn't good for them. And we needed to think harder about how we treat children in the justice system. Mm. And we need to be more empathic and we need to be more focused on rehabilitation. That kind of seems to not have really gotten into her psyche much. I mean, being detained at our facility is not a picnic at all. It's not supposed to be. It's a consequence for an action. And what's it like to be in her courtroom as a child? We talked to a number of people who have cycled through her courtroom. And remember, she's been there since 2000. So, in fact, there's been generations. Mm. You know, I've, I've talked to parents who have been through a courtroom, who've had older children who've been through a courtroom, who have young children who have gone oh, wow. through her courtroom. Yeah. Um, she is, she is a, a looming presence. You know, she is very no-nonsense. She is very outspoken. I talked to a number of lawyers who described her as kind of leading with emotion. You know, some judges, they're very focused on case law and precedent. She's more about what's right in front of her. What is her gut telling her? And that can be really harsh. And that can be really challenging for the people that come through her courtroom. One mom told me, you walk out of there and you feel this big. And she kind of squished her fingers together It's pretty demoralizing, I think, to go through her courtroom at times. Mm. She's very harsh. And she said that. She said that on her radio show. She said, I know I'm harsh. I know I'm harsh. People tell me I'm harsh. So tell us a little bit about the process that Judge Davenport put into place that allowed for them to arrest children and detain children illegally, as you said. So we start the story with this mass arrest of 11 children. And when you back up, you realize that there are mechanisms behind that arrest. That, yes, this is based off individual actions of a number of people, but it all trickles down from somewhere. And the mechanism was these two policies in action. The first policy was directly attributed to Judge Davenport. It was a memo that she wrote in 2003 where she said, upon the arrest of any juvenile, you must take them to juvenile detention facility. So, when you get arrested, you are automatically brought to this facility. And then once you get to the facility, there was the filter system, which was put into writing by her appointed jailer, Lynn Duke. And essentially what that boiled down to was a set of guidelines for staff as to whether a child should be detained or not. And 
Ultimately, it boiled down to one thing, which was, is this child a true threat? But the definition of what a true threat was was never defined in the standard operating procedures for the facility. So essentially, they were casting this very wide net that was very subjective to whoever was screening the child. And if they decided that this child was a true threat, whatever that meant to them, they could keep that child. That's completely out of bounds of the law. That's just not the way this should work. But they were doing it for years and years. You know, the year that this incident happened with the 11 children being arrested, 2016, one thing that stood out to me is that in that year, Rutherford County jailed 986 children. I mean, I'm just trying to think about that number. Almost a thousand children. That's as if that, that's as if two or three kids every day were arrested for that whole year in the county, right? I mean, that has to add up, right? Just looking around in a community, you must be noticing that children are not on the street. They're not in the classrooms anymore. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that's what I mean when I say that when I talk to families, that it was like generations had cycled through. And you get the question, or you have to ask the question of like, well, weren't they upset? Didn't they know like that this wasn't normal? Or, you know, what are they thinking? And what I learned through my reporting was that this had been the standard way of operating for so many years that many of the parents, they knew it was wrong. They knew they didn't like it, but they didn't feel empowered to challenge it. They thought that this was just the way it was done. And it was the way it was done, but it was also illegal. So, yes, I mean, thousands and thousands of children. One of the most interesting parts of the lawsuit that was eventually brought, the final lawsuit that was just settled this past June, was a class action lawsuit over these issues of illegal detention and illegal arrest. And the lawyers, through discovery, got juvenile records. Now, these are records no one can get. Mm. These are sealed records. So this is what's so amazing and helpful in this case when it comes to being a journalist, is that there's no other way you could ever get these numbers. But the lawyers got all of these juvenile records for a period of almost a decade. And they looked at how many kids were detained illegally and how many kids were arrested illegally. What other changes in practices in the juvenile justice system came about as a result of these lawsuits? There were some really key policies that were changed. The first of which was that a federal judge said the filter system, that overly broad assessment of children, the screening process, that has to stop. In 2017, a federal judge said this is causing irreparable harm to children and it's unconstitutional. That has to stop. But in our reporting, we found that, well, yes, some of the things have been fixed. There are these other aspects, right? There's the fact that the oversight on the state level is completely abysmal. There's the fact that the judge and the jailer who are chiefly responsible for these policies are still in power. They're still doing their thing, getting paid six figures. So, it's one of these stories that's interesting because you're glad that certain things have stopped, but you also see that they could happen again and that the people who are responsible for it 
have received no consequences Mm. for their actions. Well, you know, you and uh, your co-author on this reporting committed one of the greatest acts of journalism in this piece, right, by exposing injustice. And as a result of your reporting, there is already action that we are seeing in the world. Yeah, we most immediately saw that the university that the judge has been an adjunct instructor at for decades cut ties with her. She will no longer be teaching juvenile justice at this university. And then a few days later, a group of 11 lawmakers, congressmen and women, wrote a letter to Merrick Garland, the attorney general, asking that the DOJ investigate Rutherford County and open a pattern and practice investigation. And to look at these numbers, to look at the data gaps, and to look at another critical thing, which I haven't spoken about, but is really important, which is this role of a quirky thing called judicial commissioners. Judicial commissioners play a vital role in this story because, as we found out, they were the ones who issued the charges, the erroneous charge of criminal responsibility. And when we kind of followed the breadcrumbs to see who were these judicial commissioners, how did they come up with this charge? What is their role in this? We realized that in Tennessee, we have this very peculiar thing, which is this role of judicial commissioners. And in almost every county, they are given immense power. They're able to issue warrants, they're able to issue charges, and they can hold probable cause hearings. Basically, they can play the role of a judge and a prosecutor without the training of either. In Rutherford County, they didn't even need a college degree, let alone a law degree. And so the question is, why are they given so much power? Why are they allowed to be the ones to make the charges, not the prosecutors? The prosecutors do not decide what the charges are. It's judicial commissioners. And so you have these judicial commissioners that really are not qualified to be doing this work, and they're doing it, and they're making mistakes. So that was part of the letter that um, lawmakers wrote to the DOJ, which is they have to look into this role of judicial commissioners and why they are able to be doing what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask, one thing I really appreciate about your reporting is that, I mean, at first glance, it could look like Judge Davenport alone is sort of the problem. This is a story of of one judge and their unchecked power. But really, as you've described, it's so much more. If, If you were to name one piece of the puzzle that's really crucial here to change urgently, is there just one you could choose? This is a system. This is lots and lots of people. It is the judge. It is the jailer. It is the county commissioners who never ask any difficult questions. It is judicial commissioners who are not qualified to be doing what they're doing. It is school resource officers Mm. that are making a judgment that is completely out of bounds with what their role is. This is a system. This is how a terrible, unequal, oppressive system is built and maintained, and it takes a lot of people to do it. But to answer your question, if I could change one thing, well, I think someone should probably run against the judge. Because of the way the system is set up, because a judge has so much power in this case, 
that if you had someone who was different, who thought about this work differently, then maybe that would trickle down. But at the end of the day, I think what I'm saying is something that would shift the culture. Hmm. Something that would shift the culture. Because it is a culture that's been built. And it's going to take a lot of work to pull it apart. And it can't just be done by journalists. And it can't just be done by lawyers. It's got to be done by the people in charge. It's got to be done by the voters. It's got to be done by the elected officials. All that you've learned about Rutherford County, all the problems you found there, what does it all say about the juvenile justice system more broadly across the country? I think it says that we really know very little about what's happening in our juvenile court systems. And yes, the expectation of privacy is there for a very, very good reason. This shouldn't follow children. But it often is protecting the adults that are creating these policies that can be hurting children. I think it also reveals that there really needs to be a reckoning, once again, with juvenile justice. You know, we had it kind of in the mid-90s when we realized we can't be treating children like adults, their brains are different, we can't just assign them to be these terrible new breed of aggressive children. We have to treat the whole child. And now it's like we have to come back to that again and say, is that actually happening? Are those ideas actually really taking hold? And what are children experiencing in these various courts? So, yes, I think it says more broadly that we know very little about the juvenile court system in this country, that it varies widely, and that with that expectation of privacy comes a real black box of information, it's obstructing our ability to see what's happening and where things are going wrong. Mara Benight, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your reporting. We'll keep our eyes out for more ripple effects. Thank you so much for having me. Mara Benight's article on the juvenile justice system in Rutherford County, Tennessee, is available now on Apple News. You can find the link on our show notes page. 